Our Bible reading is from Colossians chapter 2. We'll read again from verse 8, and we'll read to verse 15. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. Let's hear the word of God. Reading, of course, from the authorized version. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the traditions of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. In him also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your sins, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principality and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Amen. We know the Lord will stamp with his own approval and blessing this reading of his own precious and infallible word. Now this morning, uh, as we continue with our series of expository sermons in the book of Colossians, my text today is taken from Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. And my theme today is simply entitled, Remember You're Alive and Forgiven. Now let's remember why the Apostle Paul was inspired to write this letter. He's a prisoner at Rome for the sake of the gospel. And while there, he is personally visited by a pastor called Epaphras. Epaphras is there because there's a big problem in his church in Colossae. And Colossae, remember, is a thousand miles away. He has traveled that thousand miles because he must speak to Paul face to face about the problem. What was the problem in Colossae? Colossae was battling heresy. False teachers had come in. They were guilty of simply adding to the gospel. They openly taught, well, you've received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Wonderful, brilliant, well done. We, we commend you, but you need something else. This is what you need. You need to be physically circumcised in your flesh like, like the old Jews were. And you also need the mediation of angels because... Jesus is not enough. You need something else. And you need a special wisdom that only we can give to you. You have to be part of our club. You have to be initiated into our group. And it led to confusion within the church. And also it led to, to compromise in the church. It compromised the simplicity of the gospel. It was robbing Christ of his glory. And more than that, it was corrupting the true gospel of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that is why Paul wrote the letter. 
And he wrote it under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. And he wrote it to instruct and encourage the people of God at Colossae. Remember, he's combating error when you read it. He's dealing with heresy in a very subtle form. So to encourage the people of God after his introduction and initial greeting, what does he do? Here's the best answer to heresy. False teaching, false teachers. He sets forth the person and work of Christ in all his fullness. And we have tried over this past few weeks, especially from chapter 2, verse 8, to set before God's people that they need to understand that in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. We'll not go over that sermon again. You also need to understand your spiritual circumcision in Christ. You don't need a physical circumcision. You've got a greater one, a, a spiritual circumcision of heart through our Lord Jesus Christ. Then we've dealt with understanding our spiritual baptism in Christ. And now we come to verses 13 and the verse 14. And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, are they quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. Now the apostle Paul, I believe, was trying to help and encourage the people of God. And one way that he does that is to get them to remember their former spiritual state and condition. And he, wanted, he wants them to think of what has happened to them now in the present. And he wants them to think what impact this has had upon them spiritually in their life. You see, every true believer can be told, and you being dead in your sins... And the uncircumcision of your flesh that he quickened together with him, having forgiven all your trespasses. You see, here's the wonder of being a Christian. Here's the privilege of knowing that you are a real, true, genuine Christian. And many have lost the wonder. Many have lost the profoundness of what it means to be a Christian. I, I was thinking of the title Remember you're alive and forgiven. But connected to that, I was thinking, here's the biblical definition of a real, true, genuine Christian. What is a Christian? You profess to be a Christian. What is a Christian? A Christian is someone who's alive to God and forgiven of all his sins. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is teaching. Let's think of three things this morning. We'll maybe not get verse 14 done. We can leave it to the following week. Here's the first thought that I had. Remember your former state. He says in verse 13, And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh. And you, he, he's addressing the church at Colossae. He's addressing them collectively, but he's addressing them individually. Church is made up of Jews and Gentiles. And he's thinking of what life was like for them before they were converted, before they professed faith in Christ. We could ask the question to these Colossians, what was your former state before you came to know Christ as Lord and Savior? And here's the answer. Being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Notice the word dead. We'll pause. There's a condition here. Dead. 
When someone is dead, there's no life. There's nothing there that smacks or speaks of life. Think of a corpse. You could wash a corpse. You could paint it. You could prop it up. You could do its hair. You could even put a cigarette in its mouth. You could put a glass of whiskey in its hand. You could address the corpse. That actually happened, by the way. It used to happen regularly years ago in Bush. You could present things to the corpse. But what have you got? You still have a dead corpse. And Paul's saying, you were like a corpse. And you being dead, meaning they were spiritually dead. Yes, physically you had a heart beating inside you. Yes, you were living physically, but spiritually you were dead to God. You had no spiritual life. You you felt nothing for God. You you had no thought after God. You, You had no thought about God's truth. Righteousness, God's holiness You had no thought about peace You had no saving relationship with God Why? Because you were spiritually dead That's the condition of all people Outside of Jesus Christ And of course we could ask the question Well what does a a corpse need? A corpse needs someone to impart life to it A corpse needs a, a spiritual resurrection It needs a spiritual impartation of new life. Without life being infused and imparted, the corpse remains a corpse. It remains dead. Now, notice something else here. There's a cause. If you look at the text, it says, and you being dead in your sins. We'll we'll pause there. You see, that's connected to Ephesians 2 and 1. And you hath a quickened, Paul says, who were dead in what? In trespasses and in sins. Remember what was pronounced to Adam in Genesis chapter 2 and in the verse 17. The pronouncer was God himself. And this is what he said to Adam in Genesis 2 verse 17. Um, But if the tree... Of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest of, thou shalt surely die. The word surely is an adverb. It literally means in the Hebrew, in dying, thou shalt die. And remember, we sinned in Adam. In Adam, we inherited the guilt of his first transgression. In Adam, we died. On account of that guilt of Adam's first transgression and us being in the loins of Adam, God can condemn us and sign us to hell from all eternity. See, the Bible says, as in Adam all die. And one day, Adam chose deliberately to disobey God. And the moment he partook of the forbidden fruit from the hand of Eve, he died along with her spiritually. That means he was cut off, separated from a life of communion and fellowship with God. Romans 5 and verse 12 says, Wherefore as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men. Why? For that all have sinned. When when Adam sinned, the guilt of his first transgression was imputed to the entire race. 
His sin was imputed to us. And every sin we commit inherits additional guilt. And we have a mountain of sins. Listen to what Job says in Job 13 and verse 23. How many are mine iniquities and sins? Make me to know my transgression and my sin. I wonder if you ever asked that question. I wonder if you ever prayed that prayer. Sins of thought, sins of word, and sins of deed. Too many to count even in one day. Never mind a week or a month. Never mind a year. And how many years have you been alive? You see, let's remember what sin is. Sin is any want of transgression or for conformity to the law of God. And us fallen in Adam into a state of sin and absolute misery brought guilt and the principle of sin to bear. But not only is there a cause here, he says, and you being dead in your sins, notice this, and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Now, I looked up a number of commentators and I tried to analyze what this means and I thought, there's a corruption here because that's a reference to our sinful nature that we inherited in Adam, the uncircumcision of your flesh. You see, not only are we pronounced guilty dead sinners in Adam with a bad record, but we're also pronounced polluted sinners in Adam. In Adam, we inherited not only the guilt of additional sin and his first sin, but we inherited a heart that loves sin, a heart that's a fountain of all iniquity. That's why Jeremiah could say in Jeremiah 17 and verse 9, the heart is deceitful and above all things desperately wicked. Who can know it? In relation to God, our hearts are like stone. Our hearts are cold and lifeless toward him. So, so let's get the picture here. And you being dead in sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, in your former state, before you were converted, you were spiritually like a corpse. You were lifeless toward God. And the cause was your sins. And, and not only that, you were in a state of corruption. You had an inbuilt bias to sin. Now, when you became a Christian, it was not another of you being just spiritually misguided. It was not you being weak-minded. It was not you being ignorant of things. It was not even you turning over a new leaf or not you um, entering into a form of self-improvement club. You, you, you hadn't adopted the mindset, I must try harder and do better. It, it was not about you becoming religious, praying, attending church and reading the Bible, or joining a special group. No, you remember, you were like a corpse. You needed an infusion of spiritual life. And as a dead sinner, you were lifeless toward God. You were spiritually blind to the truth. You couldn't see it. Educated with degrees, intelligent, some who were professors, and yet they could not see spiritual truth, blind and ignorant to it. Why? Because they were not alive to God. And what did they need? They needed one to make them alive to God, one to grant a quickening. You see, here's this argument you don't need Jewish circumcision. You don't need the mediation of angels. You don't need special wisdom. What do you need? You need to be quickened together with him. That's what you need. So I have a question this morning, and it's this. Are you spiritually alive to God? 
Can you testify of a spiritual resurrection in Christ? Remember, it's all connected and attributed to Christ. Apart from Christ, we're, we're all spiritually dead, alienated from the life of God, under God's condemnation, under the power and corruption of the devil. And the only answer is a spiritual resurrection. You need God to make you alive from the dead. Let me just add this. You see, as a church, people ask me sometimes, what do you believe? I believe in the total depravity of every sinner before God. I also believe in the total inability of the sinner to save himself. Why? Because the Bible says about being dead in trespasses and sins. And that's the state and condition of every sinner before God. We don't believe in a general depravity. We, we don't believe that man is basically sinful. He's totally. Why? Because he's spiritually dead. He's lifeless. He's powerless. He's blind. And that sin that he's committed, the sin he inherited from Adam, it impacts on his thought, his will, his words, his deed. And you see, did you know the Lord Jesus believed in the total depravity of the sinner and the total inability of the sinner? Remember on one occasion a man said, I, I want to follow you, Lord. That's brilliant, son. Come on. Oh, no, wait a wee minute now. I, I have to go home and I have to bury somebody. What did the Lord Jesus say? Let the dead bury their dead. Uh, how is that possible? How could the dead bury the dead? Here's the answer. Let those who are spiritually dead to God bury the physical dead who die in their sins. The Lord Jesus believed in the total depravity of the sinner. Maybe you're here this morning and you're physically alive but not alive to your sin. And you're sinning. And you're not even aware that you're sinning against God. And you're guilty of secret sins. And maybe we could even say silly sins or, or, or scandalous sins or scarlet sins, whatever they are. The reason for that is you're spiritually dead. Remember your former state. Secondly and very quickly. Remember your fabulous connection. Notice the words in verse 13. Hath he quickened together with him? The word quickened means made alive. And if I have, say, a, a, an electrical instrument, say it's a kettle, we'll say it's a radio, let's say it's a computer, and I want the kettle to work, boil water and make some tea. Or, or I want the toaster to toast some bread. Or, or I want the computer to work and I'm shaking the computer, work, work, work. What would somebody think if they came along and thought, he's shouting at the kettle to work, but he hasn't it plugged in. He's shaking the computer, but he hasn't it plugged in to the electricity source. He's standing waiting for toast and he hasn't the Toaster plugged in to the mains electric. Even the children here would say, that's a very stupid thing to do. 
You see, in relation to those illustrations, Paul says to this church, and you hath he quickened together with him. In other words, the word quicken means made alive. And the very same power that raised the Lord Jesus up from the dead was the very same power source that awakens every sinner from being spiritually dead to God to being spiritually alive to God. Think of that. The very same power to resurrect Jesus Christ from the dead is the very same power that spiritually resurrects every dead sinner to newness of life in Christ. Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 19. Listen to these words. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power? To us were to believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in heavenly places. That's a mighty, resistible, glorious, everlasting, vital power that raises the dead to newness of spiritual life. So think of your dead state to God. And then all of a sudden you're alive to your sin. You begin to loathe your sin. You realize that you're in a state of high treason to God and his throne, to God's law, to, to God's rule. And you've been made alive till it all. You see, here's what a true Christian is. A true Christian is one who is spiritually alive from the dead. He has been made alive in Christ. Now, do you understand your need this morning? Do you feel your guilt as a lost, dead sinner? Maybe you're afraid to die. Maybe you're afraid to meet God in that judgment day because you don't know whether you're going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, or depart from me, ye worker of iniquity, enter everlasting fire. Have you repented of your sin? Sorry enough to quit. Have you believed the gospel? Have you felt the reality of sin's power? Have you felt the power of God infusing new life in you. You see, it's God who imparts the desire. It's God who instills a longing after him. It's God who imparts a new mind and new heart. Formerly, we had no desire. We had a, a desire and a love for self. Then his power is manifested. And all of a sudden, I feel guilty. I've sinned against God. I begin to hate and loathe my sin. You see, and you become full of thankfulness. And you say, I'm concerned. I, I would like to be saved. I'm afraid to die. I'm afraid to meet God in the judgment. You see, that's the first stirrings that God is at work. That, that, that's evidence of new birth. That, that's the evidence of life. In the midst of the horror of being spiritually dead, you, you have a felt need. The Lord Jesus Christ in the fullness of his work is presented to us. And we hear the wonderful call of the gospel, whosoever shall call in the name of the Lord shall be saved. And the question comes to us like Pilate, what shall I do then with Jesus, which is called the Christ? And the call is to receive him, to, to bow before him, to, to come to know him. When did you become a Christian? Here's the answer. When God performs the miracle of the new birth. And because God has performed the miracle of the new birth, you hear the call of the gospel. 
You're convinced of a felt need. You repent. You believe. You receive Christ. There's the application of the blood. You get a full justification. You're adopted into God's family. You discover God has worked a work in me. God has worked a miracle. I'm a living Christian. I'm alive in Christ. And it's fantastic. Remember your fabulous connection. In Christ, you've become alive. As in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. One final thing here. Not, not only remember your former state, and remember this fabulous connection, but remember you're fully covered. Look, look, look what it says in, in verse 13. Having forgiven you all trespasses. You see, notice the subject here. Having forgiven you all trespasses. We'd we'll ask the question, what has happened to our sins and trespasses? You know, the word trespasses here means going over into forbidden territory. Doing things God has told you not to do. And not doing the things that God has told you to do. That's what sin is. It's any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Sins and transgressions refers to the breaking of God's law. That, that's what sin is. It's, it's a transgression of God's law. It's, it's sinning against him. It's, it's provoking him to wrath. You see, if you think of just one day, your physical life, every sinful thought you have, every sinful deed, every sinful word, sins of pride, anger, self-centeredness, self-love, not acknowledging God, breaking the Sabbath, not loving God with all your heart. You see, what's he telling us? He's giving us splendid news. Having forgiven all your trespasses. Isn't that tremendous? You're guilty of high treason against God. That's the state of every sinner. High treason to God, his throne, his law, his government. But in that state, because you've experienced a quickening, then here's another message. You've got a full and free pardon. Remember what the psalmist said, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. Sin carried away like the rubbish. Sin covered over with the precious blood. Sin cancelled out. Sin's penalty paid. The penalty of sin is death. The power of sin is broken. The pleasure of sin, well, well it, it, it's being um, spoiled. We no longer love sin. We, we, we now love the Savior. And one day we're going to be saved from the very presence of sin. See, that, that's the subject that he introduces. I, I want you to see that. Remember you're fully covered. The subject of forgiveness. Think now as we close, the source of forgiveness. You see, when I read this, the first thought come to my mind was, how can God forgive sin? On what ground? Forgiven you all trespasses, secret sins, scandalous sins, silly sins, scarlet sins. Every sin carried away out of sight like the rubbish, covered over with the blood. 
What sins are you talking about? I don't remember. Sins cancelled out like a debt. And the answer is found in Christ. I was muttering to myself earlier on in the week, or last week, Calvary covers it all. In 2 Corinthians 5.21 we read, For he that is God hath made him that is Christ to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. You've got to think of the blood atonement of Christ. All sins, past, present, and future, all under the blood. You see, there's nothing we can do to get rid of guilt. We can't break the power of sin ourselves. You and I are powerless in relation to break free from sin's control. We, we can't absolve ourselves. We, we can't acquit ourselves. Not only do we need a divine quickening, but we need a divine forgiveness. We need the Lord to come and say, I have forgiven you all your trespasses. Forgiveness for every sin. Now, now notice as we finish, God doesn't sweep it under the carpet. He doesn't ignore it. He doesn't pretend it's not there. It's okay. You see, sin pays wages. The wages of sin, the Bible says, is death. A penalty had to be paid. God is just, holy, and righteous. And the penalty must be paid in full. Now, maybe you're thinking as we finish this morning, listening to me, you're talking about being a sinner. You're talking about sins and trespasses. But I'm not a terrorist. I haven't killed anybody. I'm not a rapist. I'm not a child molester. I'm not a sodomite. I'm not a thief or adulterer. I go to church. I've got my faith, you know. I, I, I live a good life. I'm honest. I pay my taxes. Now, what has that individual got? That individual has too high a view of their own goodness. They haven't saw themselves as dead in sins. And they haven't saw themselves in the uncircumcision of their flesh. And on top of that, they have too low a view of God's holiness, God's righteous, God's justice. Think of this, the first command, thou shalt have no other gods before me. So let me ask this question. Do you love anyone, any object, or anything more than you love God? And if you say yes, then you've broken the first commandment. And I ask this, can you say I love the Lord Jesus Christ more than anyone else in the whole world? Who can put hand to heart and say I do? Because by nature we're all innate idolaters. We don't love God first. We don't love God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength. We don't love him supremely. We don't love him first of all. And you see, that in itself, and that's only one sin. Not loving God with all the heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the reality is, all that sin has been dealt with in Christ. Listen as we finish. In Isaiah 53, we read the lovely words, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Think of that. There's the heart of the gospel. How does God forgive sinners? It's no light matter. And you see, that's what verse 14 is all about. It's the hardest thing that God ever did. 
It's the most costly thing that God ever did. It's grander than the work of creation. It's grander than the work of providence. It's grander than him controlling the whole world by the word of his power. To bring people into a new relationship so they're quickened from being spiritually dead to spiritually life. And being able on a just, righteous ground to forgive all trespasses so that the individual is legally and fully justified. Well, well, well that's a splendid thing. This forgiveness is a gracious gift. It's a bountiful gift. It has pardoning love superabound. It's an eager gift. God entreats and calls men to be reconciled. It's a certain gift. It's sure and certain. It's real and genuine. It's a blessed gift. It's a moral and spiritual cleansing from sin. And this is the second time he emphasizes forgiveness, by the way. He did so in verse 13, verse 14, Colossians 1. Now he mentions it again the second day. Why does he emphasize it? Because it's, it's a splendid thing. A subject, forgiveness of sins. It's a big subject. The source, it's grounded in the personal work of Christ. He emphasizes how God did it. It's through the cross work of Christ. Through his blood shedding and then Calvary. And it's splendid. He recommends it. Let me ask this. Have you ever had a genuine sorrow for your own sin? Have you ever had a desire to forsake and turn from your sin to the Savior? Have you got a heart that wants to forgive others because you love Jesus Christ and you've been forgiven much? And out of love for him, the way he has dealt with you, you deal with others. There's the evidence of experiencing God's forgiveness. May the Lord take these few thoughts this morning and bless them to her heart.